I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad to be here this morning. It feels like I haven't preached for a little bit, so it's always good to be back and sharing the Word. I love this book, church family. I love the Word of God because it is an invitation for me to know my Creator all the more. That God gave us this book as a love letter to, to know us. And, uh, you know, there, when you read the Psalms, especially the Psalm that we're going to read today, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 119. This Psalm is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is the Psalm that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friends. I'm sorry, I won't get it stuck in your head. <clears throat> but you know, when you read the Psalm, when you read this Psalm especially, you can see the delight that the Psalmist takes in the Word of God. And for some of us, you might think, how can you delight in the law? How do you delight in, in the law, in the word of God. I don't, I don't understand how that takes place. Well, you know what? I remember when I was 16 years old and preparing to get my driver's license, I would be reading the driver's ed manual, right? Like you read the, the list of laws. And let me tell you that that's not fun, right? When you're preparing to study for a driver's exam and you've got to learn all these different laws, that's not fun. But let me tell you, let me, let me rephrase this or give you a different example. My, my parents, my mom and dad, when I was younger, they gave me this book. And uh, we called it Pillow Talk. And uh, my parents, uh, they would leave me letters in this book, and they would leave it under my pillow. And when I went to sleep that night, I would find it under my pillow, and I'd read that there was a new entry from my parents to me. And I would respond and leave it under their pillow on a different night. But when when I would open up this book, sometimes... You know, sometimes it was my father giving me advice. My dad's sitting over there in the second row. Uh, and sometimes he'd write advice to me, like, hey, son, just remember to always love Jesus. Remember this and remember that. And, and when I read this, when I read the word of God like that, as this is a, this is a, as a word of instruction as a lo- from a loving father who's trying to give his children the best way to live life. And, and he's letting us know how much he loves us. When we read the word of God like that, we can delight in the law. We can delight in the word of God. And, you know, Psalm 119, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, of what we read in the Psalms, it just sounds like, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever written poetry before, uh, but the only time that I ever write poetry is when I really feel inspired to, right? It's not an active discipline of mine. Uh, writing poetry is difficult, but sometimes it's just this like outpouring of random words from my heart, and I just put it on a page. And But you know what? Psalm 19 is not this random outpouring of words. In fact, C.S. Lewis describes Psalm 119 as a pattern or a thing done like embroidery stitch by stitch through long quiet hours for love of the subject and for the delight in leisurely disciplined craftsmanship this psalm that we're about to read is uh is an intricately woven tapestry of words and of writing as an ode or a tribute to the word of god to 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 the law of god you know now um this is, like I said, the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, but it's, an, it's a giant acrostic. It's composed, Psalms 119 is composed of 22 stanzas, and each stanza uh, has eight equal verses in it, and the initial word of each verse begins, so like, for instance, uh, the first stanza in 119, the initial word of each verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
And so uh, Aleph is, is what each word will begin with. And then the second stanza, each word, each initial word of each verse begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on and so forth, because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there's 22 stanzas. And so this, uh, this chapter is a giant acrostic, and each stanza is headed by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, the subject of the psalm is the written word of God. And the psalmist has eight different nouns that he uses to describe God's word in this chapter. It's law, testimonies, uh, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, and promise. And each stanza includes most of these eight nouns. But each of these words have been carefully selected in this tribute to the word of God. And you can see the love, and you can see the respect and the awe that the psalmist has for scripture. And remember that the psalmist, uh, he didn't have the, the Bible that we have today now. He didn't have uh, the New Testament and, and the writings of Paul and the book of Acts. But, but the, the, the law that the psalmist is referring to, the word of God that the psalmist is referring to, is the first five books of the Old Testament, which is known as the Torah. And you might be thinking now, those, those are some of the hardest books to get through. I mean, Genesis is kind of cool. Exodus is, you know, half of it's kind of cool. But then you get to the last half of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And it's just, those are the most boring books of the Bible, right? I mean, he didn't have the epistles. He didn't have Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Galatians and Romans and Acts and the, the New Testament Gospels. Man, Paul is referring to some of the most boring books of the Bible, and yes, the New Testament is amazing, and it's equally the Word of God today. It's our scripture. It's the Word of God today. But much of Jesus' teachings and many of Paul's New Testament letters, they refer to either the account of creation in Genesis or the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt or relates somehow to the fulfillment or the clarifying of the law of Moses. And so many foundational elements of the story of God's interaction with humanity are found in the first five books of the Bible in Genesis through Deuteronomy. So even though the psalmist was referring to scripture that he had in his day, I believe it's very appropriate to apply the same affection and respect to the Bible that we have today. It is the written word of God. And I'd encourage you sometime, maybe this next week, to set some time aside and read this chapter in its entirety. But for the sake of time, we're just going to read the first stanza together. Because like I said, this is truly the psalm that never ends. I think in the reading plan, it's broken up into multiple days. And so turn with me to Psalm 119. We're just going to read verses 1 through 8, and I will be reading from the NIV translation. It says, what's the first word in here? Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all of your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. I hope how you caught the comparison between the beginning of this chapter and the very first psalm that we talked about at the beginning of this series psalm chapter one begins with blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked but his delight is in the law of the lord 
And on that law, he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does prospers. The book of Psalms, and this chapter, the word of God is about blessing. It's about God's promises fulfilled in your life. And so the psalmist, the very first word that we see is blessed. It's a book of blessing. This is a chapter, a psalm of blessing. God does not give us his word to enslave us to religion or to take away our freedom. His word is meant to bless us. And that word blessing in the Hebrew, it means to give us abundance or fulfillment, happiness, joy, to give us the favor of God. Turn to the person next to you and say, I want the favor of God in my life. You know, the, the word of God is, is, is precious. And you know, if you grew up in church every Sunday, hopefully your pastor read from the Bible. If he didn't, I don't know what church you were going to. But, but you know, the word of God is, is precious to the people of God. But we live in a world where the word of God is holding less and less weight. It's, it's holding less and less water. And, and, and there's some, some modern critiques of the Bible that people have. And there's questions that come up. And you know what? The word of God encourages questions. It doesn't discourage us from, from looking at a text. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time or you've been reading the Bible for some time, you might be reading scripture and you think, whoa, wait a second. Uh, that doesn't make sense because, you know, this says this in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is saying this. Or, or sometimes uh, there's questions that come up. And the Bible encourages you to ask those questions because it's not trying to hide anything from you. It's not trying to trick you. God is not trying to deceive you. He's not trying to hide anything from you, but he's made himself plainly visible through his word. But there are some modern critiques of the Bible. And before we go any further, I want to address three of these critiques or criticisms that people have of, have of the word of God today. Because I believe that if you spend some time, if, you, if maybe you are in this room, and, and if I'm honest, I've asked these questions of the Bible myself. I've had these criticisms of the Bible myself. But I promise you that if you do the work and, and you study the word of God and you dedicate yourself to the study of the word of God, the answers will be made available, will be made plain to you. And so the first criticism that people would have of the Bible today is this. That they would say that the books of the Bible were written and compiled by men. Therefore, it is full of errors and cannot be perceived as God's divine word to humanity. How many have heard this argument before? That it's written by men, it's compiled by men, so how can this be God's divine word? Well, why do we affirm that the Bible is inerrant? And that's what you call, that's what you, that's what you say when you mean like the Bible is without errors, that it's completely truthful. Our church, at our church, we believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, that the Bible is truth, that it is without error, but the, the writers, uh, uh, um, we affirm that the Bible is inerrant because the writers and the speakers in the Bible, they present these writings as uniquely authoritative. And Jesus himself affirms the authority of Scripture. In John chapter 1035, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament when he says that the Scriptures cannot be broken. And in Numbers 23, 19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. See, there's an interesting piece in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. I love this. this, You can look at it yourself, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and it's verse 7 in both of those chapters where the writer, the author of Hebrews, is quoting from Psalm 95 multiple times. And in Hebrews 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, he says that the Holy Spirit said this, and he proceeds to quote Psalm 95. Well, if you flip over to the next chapter, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, he says that David wrote this, and he quotes the exact same scripture. So the intention is that the writer of Hebrews 
is saying that David wrote the passage with the guidance and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit wrote the word of God. That the Holy Spirit wrote these words through David. It was his inspiration. Second Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. All scripture has been inspired by God. Now, some of you in the room or watching online, you might be thinking about pastor. You're using the Bible to defend the Bible. You're using uh, you're using scripture to defend scripture. You can't do that. Well, the reason that I do that is because if you truly believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, you believe that the word of God is absolute truth, that there's nothing higher than the word of God. You can't swear upon anything else higher than the word of God. You know, the, the reality is that the authority of scripture and, and the inerrancy of scripture was never questioned uh, from the completion of the New Testament to about the 1600s. And it was during the 1600s, during the time of enlightenment, that people started to question the accuracy and, and the inerrancy of the Bible. But believing that the Bible is inerrant, it doesn't mean that you believe that there aren't translation errors. Because we've seen this in Scripture. We, there, there was a time, there was a, a season where um, the, um, the writers of this translation got two Hebrew letters mixed up. And it totally changed the meaning of the verse. And so uh, we know that there have been translation errors throughout, throughout time in the, in, the, in, the, in the sharing of the word of God. And we know that uh, some English translations use different words at times because they believe they have a more accurate interpretation. And so the doctrine of inerrancy, it teaches that although there may be issues in translation, the Bible is completely truthful. It's inerrant in everything it affirms and denies and it should be viewed as God's divinely written word to humanity. That it is truth that God's not trying to trick you or deceive you in any way. Which leads me to the second critique or criticism. It's this. That the Bible contradicts itself in places and therefore cannot be the standard for truth. If you've been reading the Bible for some time, you might have come across a few passages that didn't quite make sense. Or maybe, um, uh, like for instance, um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he describes Judas's death. And in the Gospel of Ma- Matthew, it says that Judas hung himself on a tree. That he committed suicide by hanging himself on a tree. Well, if you were to continue reading and you go through the book of Acts... You see in the book of Acts that they say that Judas fell over, he fell into a field and his body spilled out his innards. Gross, right? And, and, and you, might, you might be thinking, now a critical mind might think, well, wait a second, like Matthew was describing, you know, that he hung himself and in Acts it says that his body, you know, fell out in a field. And you have to understand that for the, the first century writers, and we do this today even, when we describe uh, scenes and scenarios to people, that there are some writers of the Bible that would summarize stories. Some authors would, would try to uh, emphasize uh, certain elements of the story. Some would paraphrase, right? Some would, some would uh, paraphrase words heard by, first by, by um, people who were there. And you can kind of make sense of this. And, you know, I, this is just an example, but, but like in Matthew, you know, maybe, maybe Judas really did hung himself. He, he hung himself on a tree. And, and you can imagine that after, after time, his body becomes heavier and bloated and it's rotting in the sun. And maybe, maybe Luke is describing that the branch broke and his body fell into the field. And so where Matthew is describing how he actually died, maybe Luke in the book of Acts is, is trying to describe kind of the horror surrounding his death. He's trying to emphasize something differently. 
And like I said before, when one reads the Bible, questions begin to naturally come up. But the Bible, like I said, doesn't discourage these, these questions. God's not trying to trick you. He's being completely truthful. His word invites us to, to ask these types of questions. But I've noticed that people who ask, people who are, are, are this critical of the word of God, um, I, I would say that they're not as critical of other things in their life like they are the word of God. Let me, let me give you an example. They would have a, a simplistic view of inerrancy. So lo, let me give you a for instance. Let's say that my wife is driving her minivan and uh, her, her battery won't start. Let's say her battery dies in the parking lot of Rite Aid. And so she gives me a call and she says, hey, uh, my minivan's battery died. I'm waiting for the tow truck to come so he can take us to his shop. Can you come? And swap cars with me so I could put the kids down for a nap and you stay with the tow truck. And you stay with the car until the tow truck gets there. Now, that, that's what actually happened. Let's say that's what actually happened. And in describing this scenario to somebody, perhaps I was late to a meeting and I show up and I say, hey, sorry, I'm late. My car broke down and I had to wait for the tow truck to come and fix it. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry that I'm late. Now, somebody with a simplistic view of inerrancy would look at me and say, wait a second. He just said that it was a minivan, not a car. But we understand that car is perfectly acceptable when you're talking about a minivan. Maybe for, not, maybe for some of you truck drivers, it's not. But, but we would say, like, you know, that, that's acceptable. Oh, wait, but, but a second ago, he said that it was his wife's minivan. Is it his minivan or his wife's minivan? Well, let's, let's say the van, the title of the van is in my name, but my wife drives it. Whose van is it? It's, it's, it's a paraphraser. It's a simplifying of, of the story. Now, when, when he said that the car broke down, does it mean that the engine's totaled, the engine needs to be rebuilt? Or because before he said that the battery just died. And so there's some incongruencies here, and they don't quite line up. See, people take this type of criticism to Scripture, and, and what they don't understand is that the authors of Scripture are trying to convey a message, a truth. And they're not contradicting each other. They're telling different sides of the story. If you were to ask two people to describe the same scenario, they're going to pick out different elements that were more important to them to describe that scenario. And so when we read the Bible, we have to understand that this was written by multiple viewpoints, but described the same truth, the same message, the same life of Jesus with different emphasis on parts of Jesus's life. And so when we read the Bible, we can understand that the Bible is truth that it is truthful. In fact, I would say that the fact that it has more eyewitnesses that describe the same accounts that weren't together when they wrote the books. These books were written years apart from each other, but you have multiple authors describing the same events in detail. That actually brings more weight to the accuracy and the truthfulness of Scripture. Here's the third thing. Am I, are you still with me? We're going to get into some practical things here in just a minute, but I really want to, I want to hammer this in because I believe that there's people watching online and maybe people here who question the authority of Scripture and maybe they use it as, the Bible is used as just an additional book to their list of readings, uh, to their list of self-help books. And I want everyone in the room to understand that our church and what we believe is that the Bible is truth. It's the Word of God. There is no authority above the Word of God. But here is uh, one of the biggest criticisms of Scripture. And I want to try to tackle a little bit of it today. We're going to just dip our toe into this conversation because it's a big conversation. 
They would say that the Bible was written to an ancient audience, and therefore many of the moral and ethical teachings cannot be translated into our modern world, cannot be applied to our modern world. It was written to a different group of people, so some of the teachings and moral teachings are are different for us today. And this is a big one for today's culture. There's over 600 laws in the Old Testament. Did you know that? And Christians are accused of being inconsistent by choosing to obey some and choosing to ignore others. For instance, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19 says that uh, you are not supposed to wear a garment made with two different types of cloth. So you can't wear a shirt that's both polyester and cotton. And, and there's another law in Leviticus that says you can't boil a goat and milk. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done that before, but some of you maybe not even heard that law before, but it's in the Bible. And Christians have argued for centuries about which laws are relevant today and which laws aren't. And the question is, do we have a good reason for still obeying some commands and ignoring others? And I believe that we do have a good reason. I believe that the reason is this, that as you read the Bible, you need to read the Bible in the context of its storyline. That the Bible has a covenantal development that's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the freedom found through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you read the Old Testament, when you read Scripture, you need to read it in terms of its covenantal development. God made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament that distinguished them from other nations because they were to be set apart. That's the Old Covenant. And when we read the story of Scripture in its entirety, we see that we are now under a new covenant. And Paul describes this as the law of Christ. We are now under the law of Christ, and the old covenant has been passed away. That Jesus fulfilled the old covenant, and he crucified it on the cross with him. So the old covenant has completely gone away. And I would argue that none of the commands in the Old Testament are binding in and of themselves. Because the whole covenant has passed away as a package. It's gone. We are under a new covenant entirely. We follow a new covenant. So the question is not, why do we follow some of the commands? The question becomes, why do we follow any of them at all? Why do we follow any of the, old, uh, any of the commands in the Old Testament at all if we are co- under a, a new covenant entirely? Because we still keep some of those commands, don't we? And Jesus repeats them. In the New Testament, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie. But what's the rationale behind which ones we keep and which ones we don't? And I would like to, I guess the most broad summary of of this answer is that the purpose of the New Covenant is is not to provide ways to keep us righteous before the Lord. Because Jesus already did that. Jesus made a way for us to be righteous before the Lord by, by dying on the cross. But the purpose of the Old Covenant was to give us ways to keep right before the Lord. The purpose of the New Covenant is not to provide ways to keep us righteous before the Lord. The purpose of the New Covenant is to teach us how to love God and love others. This is a broad summary statement. Jesus said in the New Testament that all the commands can be boiled down to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience to the old covenant was a requirement of right standing before God, but now obedience to the new covenant is a product of love. Let me say that again. Obedience to the old covenant was a requirement for right standing before God. Now obedience to the new covenant is a product of love. You're righteous. 
You don't have to do anything to earn God's favor, right? For God to be pleased with you. He can't love you any more than he already does because he sent his son to die for you while you were still sinners. And now the the role of the new covenant is to give us uh, access to love God better and to love people better. It's a product of love because your righteousness has already been purchased for you. So let me just speak very plainly for a moment because I don't want to cross, I don't want to give any mixed signals to anybody. And... um, there, there's, there's a movement in our, in our world right now, and this conversation comes up a lot of times with a lot of my friends. So let me speak very plainly for a moment. Let me be, be very honest with you. Most of the instances I have heard this criticism of the Bible is in the context of same-sex relationships. And Leviticus, yes, it says that a man should not lay with another man, but it also says all these other things that you shouldn't do. So, so the, the criticism, the question is becomes like, why do you single out this one thing? Why is this one law in the Old Testament that you choose to hold on to? Why do you single out this one thing and not others? Well, like I said, this is another sermon for another day. This is a big conversation, and I generally don't like to make these general sweeping statements from the pulpit because this is a conversation that needs to be had in love and in compassion, and it needs to be a face-to-face conversation because um, every situation is different. It's a different sermon for another day, but let me just say this. That not only is the teaching of marriage between a man and a woman mentioned in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, it does, uh, it speaks against same-sex marriage, but also this, that God's design for marriage between a man and a woman came before the law. It came before the Old Testament law. It came before sin. It was one of the first images God developed to represent humanity's relationship with him. He's the groom, we are the bride of Christ, and the image of a godly marriage is so important and woven within the fabric of our faith that to misrepresent marriage is to skew the picture of our relationship with God. God gave us marriage as, as, as an identifier, as a way to see how we relate to our Father, how we relate to God, that He is the groom, that He sacrificed Himself for us, that He's supposed to love us unconditionally, that He's supposed to give Himself for us, and, and, and the bride of Christ, we're supposed to submit to His authority, and, and we could talk about what that means to submit to authority, and that's a big conversation for another time, but let, let me just say that, that to mi- misrepresent marriage is to skew the picture of our relationship with God. And I want this church to hear me on this very, very clear. This doesn't mean that the LGBTQ community have earned more condemnation than you and I or anyone else in this room because we have all, I have earned my place in hell. You have earned your place in hell. There is no, there is no sin greater than another. We have all fallen short of the glory of God And so we are all equally forgiven when we come and repent before him and we turn and we come and make him the Lord of our life. We are all equally forgiven. But, but I, I don't want, I don't want a sweeping condemnation to leave this room. I want us to understand that we are called first by the new covenant and by the teachings of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. So let me move on to some more practical things. Are you still with me? All right, Scripture is wonderful. Scripture is beautiful. And I want to talk about some of the benefits of Scripture, some of the things that God's Word brings to our life. It brings so many things to our life. I want to talk about four things this morning. The first thing is this, that God's Word brings freedom. God's Word brings freedom. 
uh, in chapter 119, verses 45 and 96, it says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. See, the psalmist understands that freedom is found in God's commands, not in the release from them. How is this possible? Don't laws limit how much we can do? Don't they limit the freedom that we have in our life? Let me describe it this way, that God's vision of freedom for your life is not immediate gratification. God's not looking for your immediate gratification, the ability to do whatever you want, whatever you feel the desire. Rather, God is looking at the eternal impact of our decisions and the long-term consequences. For instance, my wife and I, we don't allow our kids to eat a lot of sugar for obvious reasons. Uh, but but my, my kids, they, you know, just like every kid, they love sugar. And sugar has more negative consequences than good. It's, it's bad for their teeth. It makes them hyper and they crash with a bad attitude. It keeps them awake when they should be resting. And sugar doesn't have much nutritional value, but instead it's bad for your body when you consume it in large amounts. And so there was this one Halloween night when our kids came back with just bags full of candy. And you know, as parents, it's like parent tax. You've got to pay the parent tax, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, parents. They come back with these bags full of Halloween candy, and they're just begging us, can we just please, can we have a few more pieces? Can we keep going? And, and you know, we're, normally we're like, no, 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 that's enough. We'll save it for later. And we put it in the pantry, and they can have it later. But, but this one night, Gideon was just insisting, can I, I just want a couple more pieces. And so we decided, you know what, let's let him experience the consequences of his actions. We said, go ahead, Gideon, you can keep eating some candy. And he ate more than he should have. And the next morning, his stomach was hurting, and he was exhausted because he stayed up too late. The sugar kept him up. He was tired in his stomach. Oh, my dad, my tummy hurts, and he's complaining. I'm like, that's why you, sh- you shouldn't have ate that sugar, man. Well, let's say that my son graduates from high school and he leaves the house and he thinks to himself, I'm free. I can eat all the sugar I want whenever I want. There's no rules. There's no law. The parents aren't looking over my shoulder. So for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, sugar, 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 sugar. He just has sugar all day long. Now, pretty soon, <clears throat> if he continues to eat sugar, he, he's going to experience the consequences of his actions. Eventually, he will be enslaved to dentist appointments and to doctor visits, and he will wake up unrefreshed, unrested. The thing that he thought was freedom was actually enslaving him. See, God gave us his word not because he wanted to take away our happiness or enslave us to a list of rules. He gave us his word because he wants the best for our lives and he knows the final destination of each decision. God designed sex and marriage so that his word, his word shows us the proper application for these things in order to bring your marriage true freedom. God wants us to have freedom in our finances. So he invites us into a lifestyle of generosity to experience his generosity. God wants us to have freedom in our relationships. So he commands us to forgive one another. Because if you can't forgive one another, you can't truly experience freedom in your relationships. But he wants freedom in your life. So he says, listen, this is what I'm asking you to do. Forgive one another or I will not forgive you. That's what his word says. That's what Jesus says in his word. In the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the, the, the master who did not forgive his slave. And Jesus says, therefore, if, if you do not forgive those around you, my heavenly father won't forgive you. God commands us to forgive because he wants us to have freedom in our relationships. 
God's wisdom is so much greater than our own ideas and what we think will bring us joy and contentment. His word is the wisdom we need to bring our lives true freedom. He's not trying to enslave you. He's not trying to keep you from things. He knows what's best for your life. And if you trust him with those things, your life will amount to so much more than you could ever imagine. My life is a testament to that. There's been seasons in my life where God has asked me of things. I don't want you, uh, when, it came to, when it came to relationships in high school, he, he didn't want me dating. He told me he didn't want me to, to be in, in physical relationships when I was growing up. And he, he uh, when I went to college, there were things that he asked of me. And, and even in college, God asked me to surrender my desire to be an actor and, 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 and my desire to be a musician. And, and God said, would you give me those desires because I have something better for your life. And, and it, was, it was a struggle. But as I began to surrender these things to God, he began to hand me better gifts, better things, things that I didn't know I needed, things that I didn't know would be so wonderful in my life. God's word brings you freedom. Second thing is this, that God's word brings illumination. Verse 105 and verse 130, it says that your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. God's word is directive, but it's also revelatory. It illuminates the hidden motives and the attitudes and the postures of your heart. And when you read the word of God, you're turning the light on in the room of your soul. And it exposes those things that were kept in darkness, those motives and those attitudes and those things that you didn't know were there. You turn, when you read the word of God, it, it reveals those things in your life. Another way to think of the illuminating power of the word is, is to compare it to a mirror. To compare it to looking into a mirror. When you look into the word of God, you're looking into a mirror. In fact, one of the sacred objects in the tabernacle, we've talked about the tabernacle and we're going to talk more about the temple and the tabernacle in September, but the tabernacle was, was the house of God. It was this meeting place of God for the Israelites. And, and one of the sacred elements of the tabernacle was called the bronze laver. And it was essentially a giant bird bath. It was this big bird bath with a bronze bowl and it was so highly polished that when you looked into the bowl, it was a mirror. You could see your reflection in the bowl. And the purpose of this was so that when the priests came to the bronze laver to wash themselves of the blood from just sacrificing animals, they're about to go into the Holy of Holies, so they have to wash themselves, they would look into the mirror to see any blemishes so they can wash it off. And the word of God is like this, that when you look into the word of God, you're looking at a reflection of yourself to see, is there anything that I need to wash away? It's this daily washing of the word. That's why when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said that he told Peter, when Peter was like, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if you want to be part of me, I have to wash your feet. And he was like, wash my head and wash my, wash my face, wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Those who are already cleansed, they only need to wash their feet. It's a daily cleansing of the word. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ, you've been cleansed. You've been free, right? God doesn't look at your sin anymore, but we still come to the word of God for our daily washing to see, okay, is there anything I've allowed to creep into my life? Is there anything I need to allow the word of God to wash away? James chapter one, he, he talks about this. In James one, verse 23, he says, anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, 
They will be blessed in what they do. The word of God is like a mirror. It's meant to show us a reflection of ourselves in comparison to the standard of God. That's why it's so important to come to the word of God daily and allow it to reveal and illuminate the things in your life that need to be washed away. The third thing is this. The word of God brings life. It brings life. Turn to the person next to you and says, it brings life. It says in verse 144, your statutes are always righteous. Give me understanding that I may live. A soul that is never fed the word of God will eventually die. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, when he's being tempted in the wilderness and the devil asks him to turn this stone into bread, Jesus looks at him and says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying that your spirit will starve to death if it's not fed the truth of God's word. Your spirit will starve. There's millions today, there are millions of self-proclaiming Christians whose spirits are starving because they don't read the Bible. Instead, they feed their spirits junk food. They feed their spirits what they hear on the news, what they see on their Facebook feed, what they personally believe is right because the majority of people believe that it's right. A starving spirit leaves the church, someone who has a starving spirit will leave the church and say, oh, I left the church because I wasn't getting fed. How many of you have heard that before? Maybe you've said that before. Oh, I left that church because I just wasn't getting fed anymore. And little did that person know that it was their responsibility to feed their spirit. It's not the pastor's job. It's not my job to make sure that your spirit isn't starving. It's your job. Because if you feed your spirit once a week on a Sunday, your spirit's going to starve. Every day we, we wake up and we come to the Lord and we allow his word to feed us, to give us life, to give us, to, to fill us back up, give us energy for the day. The last thing is this. The word of God brings stability. Verse 49 through 50, it says, Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The word of God brings hope and comfort in every season of life. And when you're in a storm or in a dark season, you can turn to the promises of God in scripture and find peace and knowing that God is with you. He will never forsake you. The word of God brings your life a stability because it's founded in the hope of Jesus and the comfort of Jesus and the peace of Jesus and those who don't have the word of God, those who don't have Jesus, they live their lives being tossed by the waves. They, 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 as soon as something bad happens in their life, they crumble, they fall apart because their identity and their life was placed in that thing. But when you put your life on the word of God, it brings stability to your life. Jesus he talks about it in Matthew 7, verse 24. He describes it as, as a man who built his house on a rock. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The word of God brings your life stability. Just this last week, um, you know, 
this week was, was a little hectic. We had some things happen at home. There was uh, something that happened here at church and, and then, you know, things that you're seeing on TV and on the news and reading on your Facebook page. And I, I came to the office one day just stressed out. I was stressed out. I show up here at 9 a.m. I sit at my desk and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get into the things I need to do and I'm just stressed out. And the Lord invited me. He reminded me that I can give this all to him, that I don't have to live the rest of the day with anxiety and fear and stress. And so I dropped to my knees and I just began to, to pray and worship with him and I began to read his word and I could feel the anxiety just lift off of me, the fear lift off of me. Because when you take your eyes off of the storm, off of the waves and you put it on the person of Jesus Christ, it brings your life peace and comfort because you're filled once again with the promise that he is never gonna leave me He's never going to forsake me. This is a promise of God. He is he has a destiny for my life. I don't need to fear. He cares for my family more than I care for my family, so I don't need to worry about my family. He cares for this church more than I care about this church, so I don't have to worry about this church. He cares for people more than I care about people, so I don't have to worry about people. That that God is going to take care of things and it puts the focus back on Jesus. I'm going to invite Mary to come up and we're going to close I want to close by by reminding, by reminding you of this important detail. This is important. This is the key. Well, everything that we just talked about today, the blessings, the, the benefits, all the things that the scripture brings to your life, this is the key to receiving all of these things. The blessings and benefits of the Bible, they're not inherently given to anyone. They are given to those who obey the Bible. Those who obey the word of God. The greatest mistake a follower of Jesus could ever make in regards to reading the Bible is to walk away without asking, what is God's word asking of me? What is this asking me to do? What is it asking me to change in my life? What is it revealing to me? When you look into this mirror, don't walk away and forget what you look like. But we're supposed to look intently into the law, into the word that brings us freedom and ask ourselves, what is God asking of me today? Not, oh, that was good. I'm gonna text that to somebody who I really know needs to hear this. Oh, that's encouraging. That's good sometimes. But sometimes we need to just go, you know what? This is for me. I don't care about this person who I know needs to forgive somebody and so I'm gonna shoot them this verse about forgiveness. No, no, no. God, what are you trying to tell me first? How is this supposed to change my life? Jesus said this in John 14, 23. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I give my life to you. Well, okay, then can you change this about your life? Can you, can you turn that to me? What was that, Jesus? I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Oh, but Jesus, I love you. I don't really want to give you that right now. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to obey my teaching. You're going to surrender it to me. How many of you have heard of the five love languages before? Raise of hands. Somebody wrote a book somewhere in time. I don't know the author's name. 
that he wrote about the five love, love languages. Each of us have a different love language that we speak. It's a, the primary love language that we receive, and then we have a love language that we like to give. And so the five love languages are words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, uh, acts, of, acts of service, gifts, gifts. Did you know that Jesus, that God speaks all five love languages? That words of affirmation, physical touch, those can all be expressions of praise that we give to the Lord. Acts of service, that's kind of self-explanatory. We serve our community. Gifts, giving, that's our tithes and our offerings. Quality time, that's our quiet time with the Lord, the time we spend in prayer. God speaks all five of these love languages, but you know what his primary love language is above all? Obedience. He says, if you want to love me, then obey me and do what I say. Oftentimes we come to God with what we think will bless him. God, would you take this offering? And God says, no, no, I'm not looking for that. I'm not looking for that. I, I'm not, I, I, I desire obedience. I want your, I want your heart. I want, I want you to do the things that I'm asking you to do. That's what I want. But God, I've got all these other great things I can give to you. Because really, I don't have time for what you're really asking me to do. So will you take these as substitutes? And we become Cain, right? Abel brings this offering before the Lord in Genesis. And Cain just kind of like puts together these fruits and vegetables. And he doesn't want to surrender the things that are really close to his heart. The things that are really important to him. And God says, those are the things I'm asking for. If you love me, you'll obey my word. You'll do what I'm asking of you. You know, we serve a God who doesn't ask for much, but asks for everything at the same time. <laughs> he doesn't ask for much. He wants, he, wants, he wants your heart. He wants you to surrender to Jesus. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. He did all the hard work. He went to the cross. He died for you. Your sins are forgiven if you would just turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I receive you into my life. I receive the sacrifice. He's not asking for much, but a life that's surrendered to Jesus, it's going to require your whole life. Some of us got into this faith not knowing what we signed up for. Well, Jesus, I didn't know you were going to ask for all these other things. And people have problems with like, with like tithes and offerings or, or acts of service, you know, and get serving in our community. And, oh, I don't think God would ask for 10%. Oh, God, God doesn't want 10% of your money. He wants all of your money. But he doesn't ask for much. He's willing to settle for 10%, right? He wants to use all of you, not just your money. He wants to use your time. He wants to use your talents. He wants to use your knowledge and, and your relationships. He wants to use all of you. But you've got to give him access to it. And you've got to say, God, all of it belongs to you. You, you ask me to do whatever you want, and I will do it. I will obey you because I love you. As I've been reading this this week, it's really changed my motivation in my heart because now when God asks me to do something it's not that if you don't do this I'm going to slap you up the head or you're going to you're going to have a consequence no 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 when God asks me to do something now I'm not worried about the consequence I'm worried about not loving him I'm worried about him thinking that I don't love him because I'm not listening to him I love God and I want to do what he asks and sometimes he asks really difficult things Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my word. But he's a good and gracious God. And let me say that God is patient. He's patient. Because sometimes, I mean, 
There are people who live for years and years and years. And for years, God asks for the same thing. And we tell them no. And God says, you know, it's, it's what I really want, but I'll be patient. And I'll wait for you to give it to me. And some of us, we don't know why we feel stuck in our spiritual growth. We feel stuck in life. We feel like we're not going anywhere. We feel like the voice of the Lord is silent in our lives. We can't hear from God. And all the while, God is saying, it's because you haven't given me what I've asked you for. If you'd surrender it to me, then it wouldn't be a distraction in your life anymore and we could have a relationship that you've always wanted. I'm gonna pray for you this morning. I want everybody to stand. And we're gonna spend some time in prayer. Uh, I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward. If Jethro and Cheryl, you wanna make your way forward and maybe Peter and Kurt Baker and come on up here. I wanna give you an invitation. I believe that there are things today, I, I think that some of you are ready to surrender that thing that God is asking you to surrender. I think today is the day. Are you willing to surrender it to Jesus? And if you are, I'm going to invite you to, as we pray, uh, to come forward to, to talk to one of these people. These, these people up here love Jesus and they want to pray with you. And I'm going to also give an invitation for, for those in the room who have never received Jesus before. I want to ask you, if that's you, to, to in a moment raise your hands and, and receive Jesus into your heart. So would, would all of us just bow our heads and close our eyes and let's invite Jesus into this place. God, we love you. And we're not just saying that. It's not just lip service. We want to obey you. We give you our heart. We give you our passions, our desires. God, the seed of our emotion, the things that make us tick, the things that drive us forward in life. God, we understand that without you, all of it is meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. But Father, a relationship with you will change everything. In the midst of dark seasons and valleys, And on mountaintops, a relationship with you changes everything. And Father, my heart is that the people in this room who don't know you, who've never experienced that relationship with you, God, that they would come to you and you would begin that process in their life. If you're in this place and you've never given your heart to Jesus ever before in your life and you say, today I want to surrender to Jesus, would you just raise your hand so I could see your hand? I want to pray with you this morning. Anybody in the room? Hand in the back. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we surrender to you. God, I thank you that your spirit is in this place. Teach us to obey. Would you repeat after me? Jesus, I love you. And I will show you with my life. I surrender to you. Forgive me of my sin. And help me to turn away. I receive your forgiveness in my life. Now give me your Holy Spirit. And fill me with your power. So that I can continue to pursue you. In Jesus name. God, I pray for everybody in this room. I pray that you would richly fill their times in the word of God with your presence and that it would come alive to them. Father, that they would see themselves, see their reflection in the mirror, that it would bring them freedom. It would bring them illumination. It would give them life and stability. 
God, we thank you for your precious word. And that we ask that you would help us to walk in obedience with that word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mary's going to continue to play for a little bit. Um, you're dismissed. I'm going to invite you. If you want prayer, uh, my wife and I will stay up here for a bit. we got these prayer teams on the sides. Come forward for prayer. And we love you. We'll see you next week.